0: show the Dow Jones closed out its best first quarter since 1998 with a 211 point gain 25,900 and change was the close the Dow on the quarter up 10.3 uh, percent broader averages doing even better the S&P 500 rose 12.3% on the quarter. Russell, 2000, 13.8%. And the NASDAQ, uh, 15.6% gain on the quarter. Of course, the entire rally was a gift from the Federal Reserve. Had the Federal Reserve stayed on its course uh, that it had you know set out on last year or several years earlier, had the Fed continued... To indicate that more rate hikes were coming, uh, three or four this year, had the Fed continued with its planned autopilot reduction in the size of its enormous balance sheet, the stock market would be considerably lower. In fact, we probably would have added to the losses experienced in the fourth quarter of last year with additional losses Early this year, but the Fed, as I had been predicting, it would for many years reacted to the weakness in the stock market and the weakness in the economy uh, by reversing course. Now, it hasn't actually cut rates yet, although the markets are already anticipating rate cuts, not additional rate hikes. In fact, where the markets got it wrong is that there's going to be much bigger cuts than what the market is currently pricing in. I think the market is looking at maybe 25 or 50 basis points of cuts uh, that are coming. In fact, we're going all the way back to zero. A, a you know a reduction in interest rates of 25 basis points or 50 basis points would do absolutely nothing. Uh, so I think the Fed, again, is going to have to go all the way down to zero once it decides that that's what it's going to do. But had the Fed not... Uh, change course, the markets and the economy would be quite a bit weaker, although not the economy being weaker, more air would have come out of the bubble because that's all the Fed has been doing with its monetary policy is sustaining a bubble, allowing a bubble to get bigger and bigger while preventing the underlying structural problems from being solved, even though those solutions involve some short term pain. As a trade-off for long-term gain, it is a very healthy process that would be good for the economy in the long run. But instead, the Fed has interfered uh, with the market's medicine and substituted uh, its own, you know, quackery, uh, just substituting a bubble uh, to create the illusion of economic growth as the economy is actually worsening. But the only good economic news that came out today. And I'll get into the bad news a little bit later, but the only good news was the housing numbers. The new home starts uh, came out better than expected. And that was simply a function of the big drop in February. This was February number that we got today, but it was the big drop in mortgage rates that gave a short-term boost to new home sales. But for that reduction in mortgage rates, which made these expensive new homes more affordable to buyers, we would not have seen this number. We would have seen a continued erosion in the, the new home market. But I expect this to continue. Uh, this is just a blip. The home market is going to continue to weaken based on the fact that even though mortgage rates have come off their highs, they're still well off their lows, and that makes homes uh, much less affordable than they used to be meanwhile consumers are struggling with other debts that they need to pay a rising cost of living by the way oil prices were up again today we closed above 60 dollars a barrel pretty strong day in fact the high was 60 spot 73 that's a new high for the year remember i've been joking about the fact that the main excuse that the fed is using to justify its reversal of monetary policy is falling oil prices even as oil prices continue to rise higher and higher and so I expect that to continue to add to the cost of living. Um, In fact, we did get some of the numbers on consumer uh, income and spending that came out today, and they were uh, decisively below estimates. We got the number for January for personal spending. They were looking for a gain of 0.3 after the decline of 0.6 that we had in December, and instead of a Gaining 0.3, we gained just 0.1. So a much smaller bounce from a very, very weak uh, December. We got the numbers for uh, personal income in February. I guess there's still some delay because of this government shutdown. The the gain from personal income during the month of February was expected to be 0.3. Instead, it was just 0.2. And again, these numbers are not adjusted for inflation. They're just actual numbers. And so, again, I think the real cost of living is rising faster than these numbers. So Americans are struggling uh, with their uh, rising cost of living, but they're also struggling with the bills from past consumption that they put on credit cards. So it's difficult to keep buying stuff in the present. If you're having to pay for stuff that you bought in the past, and in addition, you have to pay the interest uh, that you owe on the money that you borrowed uh, to buy stuff. And so that borrowing and spending obviously boosted the GDP numbers in the past, but at the expense of GDP numbers in the present. You know, as a matter of fact, we did get the final numbers for GDP growth in the United States in the fourth quarter of the year, and of course, we now know the growth rate for the entire year. So, the number was originally reported at up 2.6 percent. And if you remember, when I, I mentioned that number initially on this podcast, I said that I thought that it was likely to be revised lower. And of course, at the time, that 2.6 percent number meant that for the entire 2018 the GDP would have grown by 3%, right? Which was the key number Trump has been bragging about 3% GDP growth. It is a target that eluded Barack Obama for the entire eight years that he was president. So it was a milestone that Trump really wanted to exceed. And in fact, he talked about it a lot because on a, Quarterly basis, uh, there had been quarters that were above 3%, even quarters at 4%. But again, Obama was able to generate uh, the, the odd quarter that showed that type of growth as well. It just never was able to be sustained for an entire year. And Trump was already kind of bragging about the fact that, hey, we've got 3% growth for the year. Well, when you take their final revision at 2.2%, that means that for all of 2018, the economy grew by 2 percent, So close, uh, but no cigar, uh, no reference to Bill Clinton there. But he did tie the best growth rate that Obama achieved during his second term. The economy grew, or at least the GDP grew because I don't want to confuse GDP with the economy, because I think the GDP is not a really good barometer of the economy, but that's the number that we use. But in 2015, when Barack Obama was president, the, um, the economy also grew by 2.9%. So Trump was not able to beat the uh, best year Uh, of the second term for Obama. So clearly, unless he can better 2.9, it's hard for Trump to claim that the economy is stronger today than it was under Barack Obama. And of course, he claimed as a candidate that the economy under Barack Obama was the worst economy ever. And now under Trump, we have the best economy ever, but we basically have the same GDP growth. We have uh, 2.9% for one year. Now, people might say, well, but Trump still has two more years left of this term, which is true, but those years are going to have GDP numbers lower than 2.9. Uh, I mean, this is the high watermark for GDP under uh, under Trump. And in fact, his first year, 2017, we had GDP growth of 2.5%. So if you average 2.5 and 2.9, you get 2.7. And guess what? If you take the two best years of Obama's second term and you average the GDP growth there you get the exact same number 2.7 percent so so far the economy under Trump looks identical to the economy under Obama the only difference is more debt right if you go back to 2015 GDP number in that year the national debt grew by about 850 billion dollars which is a big number but not nearly as big as as the $1.48 trillion increase in 2018. So basically, Trump was able to achieve the exact same growth number as Obama, yet the government had to incur 74% more debt to achieve that growth. And in fact, if you look at the increase in GDP, and not the real increase, just the nominal increase, which is a bigger number, right? Because it doesn't take out inflation. But the value of the debt outstanding actually grew by a larger number than the total value of the GDP in nominal terms, meaning that we actually accumulated more liabilities than we did assets. The economy grew, but by a lesser number than the amount of the debt. So we're actually worse off. We are poorer as a result of this economic growth, which obviously is not growth if we're poorer uh, at the end of the year than we were at the beginning of the year, measured by the fact that we we grew the size of the debt uh, by a larger dollar amount than the size of the economy. Uh, but also, of course, we're on the hook for that debt. As interest rates go up, it becomes a bigger and bigger problem. Uh, and you know, Trump. Is overlooking the enormity of the amount of money that's being borrowed to generate this uh, so-called GDP growth. I mean we had these big tax cuts that enabled the extra growth but at the expense of a larger increase in debt and the deficits are going to grow even faster in the years ahead especially if we enter a recession uh, they are going to be off the charts. Now, I know Trump might try to claim, well, you know, Obama had interest rates of 0% the entire time in 2015. The Fed didn't even raise rates uh, until December of that year. So, whereas he had to deal with uh, higher rates, uh, he could claim, well, if I had 0% interest rates, then the economy might have grown a lot more. It's possible, though, that if the Fed had never hiked interest rates at all, we might have already had a currency crisis. Inflation might have broken out, and so maybe we'd already be in recession. The fact that the Fed was able to fool so many people into believing that it was going to be able to shrink the balance sheet and normalize interest rates helped engender this second leg of the bubble, uh, which Trump benefited from. The markets were not worried about the rate hikes until – Uh, December of last year, that's when we started to see a problem. And of course, now the Fed has backed off and the markets are beginning to factor in rate cuts, which again is a big uh, artificial stimulus that Trump has in trying to sustain this bubble. But unfortunately, I don't think he's going to get out of dodge. I don't believe that the Fed is going to be able to uh, sustain this thing for another two years. Now, of course, it's possible. I mean, it's, it's, it's rather shocking that The Fed has sustained this bubble for as long as it has. In fact, given where we are now, given the admission that the Fed has already made, at least with respect to the future rate hikes or quantitative tightening, the fact that it's not doing it, even though it's made up some bogus excuses uh, to rationalize uh, the the, the U-turn, the fact that the dollar hasn't already plunged. The fact that gold hasn't already taken off. In fact, gold dropped about $20 an ounce uh, yesterday. There was no real news other than some additional strength of the dollar uh, that I think uh, got in, you know, in the way of the gold market. And gold tried to rebound this morning. It was up maybe 9 or 10 bucks. And I think the weaker-than-expected uh, uh, personal income and spending numbers uh, probably helped gold a little bit, as well as the weaker-than-expected Chicago PMI, uh, but then I think gold surrendered some of those gains as the stock market kept rising and we did get some better than expected numbers I mentioned earlier on the new home sales and also consumer sentiment numbers. And again, I think those consumer sentiment numbers, though, were probably a function of the rebound in the stock market that was engineered by the Fed and maybe a drop in mortgage rates, again, which was also engineered by the Fed and which is unsustainable. But you would have thought and I would have thought that by this point, the dollar would already be selling off off and gold would already be rising based on what the Fed has admitted. And basically, it just shows you how oblivious and how clueless uh, you know everybody remains to the true state of the U.S. economy, the efficacy of Fed policy, what is actually going on in the world and, and why the Fed had to abandon its plans. And of course, I said from the beginning that I don't even think It had a plan to do that. I thought it was faking it. I thought it was just pretending uh, that they were going to uh, normalize interest rates, just pretending that they were going to shrink their balance sheet, just waiting for the opportunity to come up with a reason or an excuse to explain why they had to abandon their plans so they can continue to maintain the pretense That normalization is something that's possible and is going to happen at some point in the future. Or that shrinking its balance sheet is possible and it's just going to happen in the future. But neither are possible. And it's not really because of the economy not being strong enough. It's not about the strength of the economy. It's about the sustainability of the bubble. There is no economic strength. There is a bubble that is masquerading as economic strength. And because of the enormity of the leverage in this economy, and it's not just the existing leverage, in order to keep the bubble going, we need to take on more debt. In order for consumers to keep spending, they have to be able to keep borrowing. So we have to be able to not only handle the debt we have, but handle the additional debt that we have to accumulate in order to keep this whole house of cards from collapsing. So that is the real reason that the Fed has to stop raising rates. And that's the reason that it's going to have to reduce them back to zero. That's the reason it's going to have to do more quantitative easing. It's because we don't have a real economy. We have a bubble and that's what the markets have to figure out. But of course, you know, it's not just a bubble in the economy. We have bubbles in all sorts of assets, and you know today was one of those days where you really get to see uh, more examples of the absurdity of the mentality of the bubbles. Very reminiscent of the dot-com era. I mentioned this was the the best first quarter uh, since 1998. Uh, early in really the dot com mania, or I think 98 to 2000 was really kind of the, the last couple of years of the dot com surge. It maybe got going in the mid 1990s, but by 98, 99, we were really getting all these crazy IPOs. Well, today uh, we had IPO of Lyft, uh, highly anticipated IPO. You know, Lyft is the big competitor with Uber. Uber is still a private company, it has not gone public, but it Uber is the most valuable. Uh, private company in the world i think the estimates for uber's valuation right now private market valuation is in the neighborhood of 100 billion dollars so that's a good neighborhood to be in i guess if you can get in there lyft i think came public today with a market cap on the ipo price of a little over 24 billion dollars so just about one-fourth the uh, the market cap of uber now this is the largest IPO that's come out in about I think three years the last the last IPO that was this big was snap you know and of course if you snapped up uh, snap on the IPO I think it came public. Around 15 bucks, 17 bucks, trying to remember where it was. Uh, But today it's $11. So obviously if you got in on the IPO, if you still have your stock, you know, you're losing money. Now, if you were smart enough to flip it, because I think it had like a 45, 50% pop, The first day of trading, it got up to about 25 and I think it almost got to 30 bucks probably in the first week. So if you were dumb enough to snap it up in the aftermarket, which is when the retail public gets the first opportunity to buy the stock because they rarely get in on the IPO allocation. These are all the institutions, the people that are buddies with the underwriters. You know, they get the ability to buy the stock and then flip it into the public market. But if you were unfortunate enough to buy snap, as soon as it was free trading, well, you paid twenty-five to thirty dollars a share three years ago, and now you're looking at eleven dollars a share. So the people who bought on that IPO are are losing money. Now that didn't stop people from lifting up a lot of shares of Lyft as uh, it you know lifted out of the you know the IPO market today. It actually had a twenty-two I think dollar pop. I think it they they priced it. I don't know, around $72, $72.5, 72 I forget something like that. And it immediately shot up over 20%. It got as high as 88.60, but then basically sold off all day. And I think it closed right about the low of the day, 78.29, up just 7.86%. So a big decline from the opening five minutes or so of trading. And in fact, in the aftermarket, the stock is trading lower as I'm recording this down around 77.70-ish. So continuing to sell off, not a very good sign. We'll see how the stock trades next week. You know, Uber, not only is it the biggest uh, IPO since Snap, but it did set a record. It is the company that has lost the most money In the previous year, it has set a record for a money losing company going public. Lyft actually lost $911 million in 2018. Lost $901 million. And people are lining up to buy into a company that lost $911 million. Now, of course, I said this is the record for a money losing company going public. That record is going to be shattered when Uber goes public because uber is losing about 800 million dollars per quarter per quarter 800 million dollars yet uber is valued at almost 100 billion to uh the what the 24 25 billion uh valuation for lyft so i guess in wall street's mind the more you lose the more you're worth the question is will lyft or uber ever make any money i mean i'm sure eventually they are going to make money the question is how much and you know is the current price of the stock worth uh the the money that they're ever going to be making and i doubt it i mean i seriously doubt these stocks will ever be worth in real terms what speculators are paying for them today um will the company survive and stay in business they probably will i mean in fact Uber and Lyft may ultimately end up merging. I don't know. I mean, maybe there's enough room for both of these companies to exist, or maybe it'll be like Sirius XM and they they merge and, and, and become one company. Of course, I think these are the, you know, these companies are global. They're ultimately going to have other competitors, too, just Local uh, competitors in the various countries that they operate uh, could be setting up ride hailing services uh, to compete on a local level more specialized than what Uber and Lyft are trying to do. Of course, they still have competition uh, from local taxi cabs that have the benefit of government. Uh, uh, intervention to try to limit competition, which is happening. There are a lot of lawsuits and a lot of regulatory issues, labor unions, all sorts of problems that ultimately are confronting uh, both Lyft and Uber. And so far, the companies are not making money. You know, I mean, and, and at the bottom line is the businesses have to be profitable. Eventually, they have to make a profit. They just can't be operating at losses and continuously selling shares into the market to finance their losses to sustain their business models. But right now, that's what's going on. But this type of valuation can only be sustainable in a bubble. It's only a function of cheap money and the fact that it continues to flow and the fact that, you know, all this money is chasing these momentum stocks. If we had a real economy, If we had real interest rates with a real cost of capital determined by the free market, not by central banks, these type of valuations would be completely impossible. In fact, I don't even believe this type of money losing would be financeable. I don't think a company could operate in a real economy and sustain this level of loss. I don't think the free market would allow it. They would force the companies to have more discipline in their business models and the way they utilize capital. Because right now, these companies are burning through capital, right? They are uh, combining the factors of production and destroying value, right, as measured by their losses. Now, they are certainly delivering services that people want to consume, But they are expending a lot of resources to deliver those services. And obviously, the resources that they're expending actually exceed the value of the services. Because if Uber or Lyft tried to raise prices to a level that would create a profit, which would mean that the consumer was willing to pay for a ride in a Lyft or an Uber, the amount of money that it's actually costing Lyft and Uber to provide the service, they wouldn't want to do it, right? They would just say, forget about it, it's too expensive, and they would do something else. So right now, all of this economic activity, all this activity is not viable. It's not economic. It's only sustainable because the investors are willing to subsidize the businesses. They're willing to pay the money that the customers are not willing to pay to ride on a Lyft or an Uber. Now, the question is, will this subsidy, will this investment pay off will they eventually be able to offer their services at a price point that actually makes it economical for the end user i doubt it uh with anywhere near the scale that they have today but investors don't seem to care right they're just buying stuff because it's going up and people don't want to be left out of a a booming market they don't want to miss out on these hot stocks so everybody jumps in but again, I think the technical action today, the people who made money were the people who, who sold, right? The people who sold the open, who flipped our shares are feeling pretty good. I'm sure there were a lot of people that in order to get stock on the IPO, basically appeased their brokers by putting in buy orders on the aftermarket. And so they got filled on that stock on the open. And if they bought as much in the aftermarket as they got on the IPO, well, they're probably break even now because they're, they're ahead on what they bought in the IPO, but they're way behind on what they bought on the opening tick. In fact, maybe they're even down a little depending on how much uh, they bought in order to, you know, look good for the bankers so they can get a preferential treatment for the next IPO. You know, if you constantly just take the IPO and blow it out on the first minute of trading, uh, they don't like that, right? They want they want people to buy and hold to try to sustain the price in the aftermarket and so sustain the illusion that there's profits there, right? And of course, the investments banks themselves, they get a bunch of stock uh, that they can sell. And so they want to maintain a strong market so they can sell the shares that they get. Uh, and, and, and have some additional income in addition to the banking fees they, they earn by doing the deal. They make more money by selling the stock into the stronger market that they help generate uh, through the publicity that goes around the launching of the IPO. And what helps to generate that is a strong market with more buyers coming in to keep that mentality going of nobody wanting to miss out and people wanting to, wanting to pile in and buy the stock. Another big uh, money-losing company that's got a lot of interest is Pinterest. Uh, I think that is one of the next high-profile uh, unicorns. You know, that's the name that they give to these uh, companies that are still private yet sport market caps in excess of one billion dollars. So the markets are looking forward uh, to that IPO, which I think is going to come. I'm not really sure when the Uber IPO is coming. Obviously, I think this Lyft IPO is going to be very important as far as what valuation ultimately can be had. For uh, for Uber, so certainly uh, the investment bankers have an interest in trying to keep the stock propped up long enough to be able to float the um, Uber IPO. Because if the Lyft IPO sinks, uh, then it's going to complicate the uh, the ability for uh, the bankers to generate uh, a good a good market for. Uber, Because they're basically they're basically the same business. It's just Uber got there first and has the bigger market cap and I guess has the bigger company. But of course, they have the bigger losses. They're losing a lot more money. So Uber needs a lot more money in order to subsidize or support the business than does Lyft. Anyway, though, this is the type of action, these crazy money-losing companies going public at sky-high nosebleed valuations. That's the type of uh, action that you see at the tail end of bull markets, of bubbles, of manias. And again, that's exactly where I think we are. I still think that this is a bear market rally, uh, again, generated by the Federal Reserve But it's not going to be enough. The damage has already been done. The air is coming out of this bubble. Uh, It is going to deflate. It's not about the rate hikes that the Fed called off from the future. It's about the rate hikes that have already taken place in the past. They have already increased uh, the debt service cost uh, for Americans the individuals, corporations, and governments. So this is going to be weighing down on consumer spending, on real consumer spending, on real uh, capital investment. It's going to be weighing down on the government, is going to be increasing the cost of government debt because short-term debt continues to mature and it's maturing into higher coupon payments. Even though the coupons are still very low, By historic standards, they are quite a bit higher than what they were when the money was initially borrowed several years ago. And so all of this debt is more expensive to finance. And of course, the deficits themselves, the new annual deficits are far bigger uh, than they were in the past. Not only because the economy is slowing, but because of the recent tax cuts. Uh, which reduced the revenue that might otherwise have been flowing to the U.S. government. Uh, They're collecting less revenue. They're spending more money. The deficits are bigger. Spending has gone up. Military spending has gone up. Welfare spending has gone up. The entitlement spending is on autopilot continuing uh, to go up. And so this is driving bigger deficits, which means that more money is being borrowed, which means more interest is having to be paid. And this interest is now higher than what the government was paying a few years ago on its very short-term debt. And so all of this is weighing down on the economy, and it's going to weigh down on the stock market. So enjoy the uh, the bear market rally while it lasts if you are in uh, in the U.S. stock market. The smarter money is selling into it. In fact, the smarter money has pr- already probably already sold out of the U.S. stock market, but clearly there's another opportunity to get out. Thanks to the Federal Reserve, it is a gift horse. Uh, There's an old saying about gift horses, don't look them in the mouth. And that's exactly what investors should not be doing with this rally. They should not be trying to figure out, uh, you know, why the market's going up or trying to bet that it's going to keep going up or try to listen to any of the other nonsense theories out there. uh, Why this is a new bull market and why, uh, you know, you should be getting involved. You should simply be thanking uh, your lucky stars that you've got this gift from the Fed to bail out of a market that you probably should have bailed out of a while ago, but now you have another opportunity to do so and take advantage of uh, the much better valuations abroad, take advantage of the fact that the US dollar is still so overvalued, uh, that the world is still focused on the problems in Europe. You can thank Brexit for that. I think that's what's keeping a lot of people worried about Europe. You can also uh, thank Trump in a way for uh, the trade war and the tariffs And the fact that people are uh, concerned about Asia or China more so than the United States and how their economy is being impacted by the tariffs. I mean, that's the one way that Trump, you could say, is helping to prop up the U.S. economy is by creating um, a lot of anxiety and a lot of nervousness. Uh, regarding the rest of the world and how the rest of the world is going to be impacted by the trade war and the tariffs. And the irony, of course, is that the United States has the most to lose and is the most dependent on this relationship going. But people don't get that. People think that the U.S. economy is somehow isolated from trade because trade is supposedly is a small part of our economy when it's a much larger part of our economy than people understand. Uh, Because so much of the non-trade-related activity is dependent on goods that are imported. A lot of jobs are here only because foreign goods are imported to make that possible. But it's just the imported goods uh, that are considered trade-related, not all the ancillary employment that is built on top of that that base. I mean, you could look at the base of an upside down pyramid uh, as all these imported products, and then you could look at the pyramid building above it uh, with all the jobs and business activity that is supported. On that tiny base, but if you remove all those products, then everything that's built above it is going to come collapsing down. But you know, people still don't get the vulnerability of the United States. They still think we hold all the cards, and that the rest of the world is uh, is you know simply uh, going to uh, you know have to deal with the consequences of of, of what we do uh, because we're the big importer, we're the big buyer, and everybody else is dependent on exporting to us. So because you still have all of this anxiety and uncertainty and nervousness surrounding what's happening outside the United States, people are not as worried about the greater problems that are that are taking place inside the United States. And so people still buy U.S. dollars and they buy U.S. stocks. And, you know, and and so in that way, Trump is helping to sustain the illusion and to sustain the bubble. You know, other people would point to the unemployment rate, too, and say, what do you mean, Peter? You're saying that the Trump economy is no better than the Obama economy. But look, unemployment is lower now than it was when Obama was president. The official unemployment numbers are even lower today than they were under Obama. And that is true. Uh, But the fact of the matter is the trend was there before Trump was elected. The unemployment rates were falling during almost all of the Obama uh, presidency. Remember, when Obama took over, the unemployment rate was around 10 percent or the official rate. And so it was down near five percent when he left office. The fact that it's gone down to four percent under Trump is nothing new. It's simply a continuation of the trend that existed before Trump was elected. So to say that there's been a dramatic shift simply because a trend that was in motion before he was elected continued to remain in motion for the two years since he's been elected is no big deal. And in fact, uh, the uh, job creation has actually slowed down a bit uh, since Trump was elected. So it's not a function of all these jobs that have been created because Trump is the Trump economy is not generating more jobs than the Obama economy. It's just that there's fewer people who are left in the labor force. Uh, that labor force, you know, that has been shrinking, and as the jobs have been added at the same pace that they were added, or even at a slower pace than they were being added under Obama, the official unemployment numbers are going down. But remember, the official unemployment rate does not tell the real story. As candidate Donald Trump reminded voters, every day on the campaign trail when he said that these official unemployment numbers are a lie, they're a fraud, they're a joke. He said unemployment is not 5%. It's 20%, it's 30%, it's 40%. The actual rate kept getting higher and higher, I think, as we got closer and closer to the election. Well, those phony statistics are no more real today than they were two years ago. Trump was correct to point out the absurdity of the official unemployment rate. I mean, I was pointing it out myself uh, for several years before Trump uh, started making the same observations that I was, Uh, but that was... That was true. I mean, the, it, you get a very a disingenuous picture of this true state of the U.S. economy or in particular of the labor market if you simply look at the official unemployment rate and assume that we've got the strong economy because we've got an, a low official unemployment rate. When you actually look beneath the numbers, you actually see how weak the U.S. labor market actually is. And that is one of the main reasons that Donald Trump got elected because a lot of people who are underemployed who are working part-time that who want to work full-time, or maybe they do have a full-time job, but they can't afford to make ends meet because the pay isn't high enough and the cost of living has been rising faster than their, their pay hikes. They, they, you know, they responded to Trump, uh, to what Trump was saying. His message was resonating with people who were living in the real world that were tired of being told how great everything was uh, by the media by the Obama administration by Wall Street everything was supposed to be great the economy was booming yet people living in the world world did not feel uh, any of that right I mean and that's where too you got the class warfare going on the perception that oh the economy is great, but it's not great for me. Well, that's where you got the 1% and the 99% and this is an economy for the rich and capitalism doesn't work because it's the rich that are being rewarded at the expense of everybody else. But it was never capitalism that was doing that. It was government interfering in capitalism that was enriching some at the expense of others. These weren't market forces operating on their own. This was the result of monetary policy of fiscal and tax and regulations that were basically skewing uh, these distributions and causing the paper pushers and the financiers uh, to reap a lot of wealth, particularly on inflated asset prices, which was a byproduct of the cheap money and the quantitative easing and the zero percent interest rates, at the expense of legitimate savings and capital investment that would have, you know, uh, enriched, uh, you know, the 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 majority of the population would have rewarded savers to the extent that America's uh, individuals save, but uh, would have uh, rewarded workers with increasing productivity and therefore higher real incomes. But we didn't get the uh, types of investments that would have led to that uh, because uh, scarce resources were being misallocated due to the central bank. But the bottom line is, despite all of the hype that you're likely to hear or read about over the weekend regarding the U.S. economy and the strength of the economy and the strength of the stock market, uh, given the performance uh, of the first quarter. Uh, you got to tune all that stuff out. This is all a bunch of noise. This is all a bubble. The economy is already rolling over. The numbers that we've seen so far in the first two years of Trump are statistically no better than two of the last four years that we that we experienced under Obama. And it's all downhill from here. Uh, the next two years are going to be much weaker. In fact, for all of Obama's second term, I think GDP growth averaged 2.2% for the entire term. And I do think that Trump's going to be below that. I think if you take all four years and we got 27 average for the first two years. I think the next two years are gonna be low enough that the average of the entire four years will come out lower than the 2.2% number that we got under Obama, but also the growth is gonna come at a much cheaper cost in terms of debt, right? How much money did we have to borrow to generate that GDP growth? And if your GDP growth is based on debt, then it is unsustainable. And in order to continue debt-based GDP growth, you have to be able to continue to grow your debt. And growing the debt becomes more problematic the larger it gets. Because the larger it gets, the more you have to grow it in order to get the same percentage amount, right? So if your national debt is 20 trillion and you need to grow your debt by 2%, well, that means a lot more debt than growing a $10 trillion debt by 2%. So the bigger the debt gets, the more debt we actually need to sustain the growth. And of course, that makes us that much more vulnerable to the inevitable increase in interest rates because you can only artificially suppress interest rates for so long. I mean, the fact of the matter is they've been suppressing them a lot longer than I believed years ago. But the bottom line is, eventually, it's going to happen, right? Trees cannot grow to the sky. Something that cannot go on forever will not go on forever. And so eventually, interest rates are going to rise. And this whole debt pyramid is going to implode. And that describes the U.S. economy. It is an accident waiting to happen. And before the accident happens, you need to make sure to prepare yourself. Now, there's a couple of other articles that I just happened to read that I wanted to mention. One was regarding McDonald's, which uh, apparently came out and announced they were going to stop uh, their lobbying efforts against increases in the minimum wage. Right, So McDonald's is now no longer going to actively try to convince Congress or the government not to raise the minimum wage. Now, the question is, why is McDonald's doing this? Now, part of it could be simply PR, right, because increasing the minimum wage has gained a lot of popularity with voters because voters just don't know any better, right? Uh, voters think that raising minimum wage is, is a good idea. I mean, even a lot of Republicans support increasing the minimum wage. I mean, that's how how bad this is. And so I think McDonald's, in order to appeal uh, to people and, and to be seen as a, you know, a, a, as a caring company, okay, yes, we're not going to stand against increases in the minimum wage, even though McDonald's knows firsthand how increases in the minimum wage destroy jobs. But, you know, that doesn't really matter because that's reality and it's perception uh, that they're probably concerned about. But I also think it goes a little deeper than that, because I think McDonald's has probably calculated that they are a large enough company and they can afford to make the investments in the labor saving devices so that they no longer need to employ Uh, lower skilled workers, and so they are not going to be as impacted by uh, higher minimum wage if they're not hiring people that work at the minimum wage, if they're hiring people that have higher levels of skills. and, And so what they end up doing is instead of hiring the really low skilled workers, they invest in automation. They build out the kiosks and things like that so people can order food uh, from a machine instead of a human. and maybe they can also invest in machines that cook the fries and make the shakes and do the burgers so that they don't actually have to hire human beings. Uh, they can hire they can employ machines. But they probably know that a lot of their competitors, especially you know the mom and pop, the local uh, restaurants or you know that would compete with McDonald's, they're gonna have a harder problem because they don't have the resources to make the upfront capital investments in these labor-saving devices. So they're stuck. They have no choice, but to either pay the higher minimum wage and then raise their prices Uh, to their customers, which, of course, would benefit McDonald's because people would shop around. And if McDonald's customers are having to raise their prices because they're having to hire human beings, whereas McDonald's can avoid hiring human beings and and use machines instead and keep their prices lower, well, then more people eat at McDonald's, fewer people eat at their competitors, and their competitors go out of business. And that's ultimately what happens if the small mom-and-pop restaurants are priced out of the market because having to employ humans at higher minimum wage laws, uh, makes them uncompetitive. Then they go out of business. So McDonald's no longer resisting the increase in the minimum wage may not actually be this altruistic or just all about, uh, perception and PR that could just be a bonus, right? They can appear to be a caring company, right? Oh, we care about the workers, right? We want to, we don't, we don't mind that they raise the minimum wage, but in reality, they realize. That now, given the cost of automation and the increase in technology, you know, 10, 20 years ago, McDonald's may not have had the ability. It may not have been economical for them uh, because the science wasn't there yet. The technology to replace the humans at this level did not exist. But now that technology has advanced, McDonald's now is at a point where it can say, hey, wait a minute, it's fine. We don't need humans. Right. Uh, We and especially if you jack up the price and make it so expensive for our smaller competitors to afford, it's going to be easier for us to expand and and dominate the market and and make more money. So workers, you know, be careful what you're wishing for. If you think this is good news, if you're a low skilled worker, you think, oh, this is great. Companies like McDonald's are no longer going to be standing in the way of higher minimum wage. Uh, They're not standing in the way for a reason. And the reason is it benefits McDonald's the company and shareholders, it doesn't benefit low skilled workers at McDonald's or any place else. But probably one of the most weird uh, stories that I, that I heard and I read had to do with a lawsuit that was filed by the housing department. This is Donald Trump's housing department against Facebook, right? As if all, you know, all as if Facebook didn't have enough legal troubles. Now they have another lawsuit. And again, you know, Donald Trump likes to talk a lot about, you know, government, uh, deregulating and staying out of business. Well, obviously this is an example of Trump doing the opposite of what he's talking about, right? And so it's important to look at what people do. Don't just pay attention to what they say. Uh, This is all about big government getting involved uh, in in, in Facebook. And so what this lawsuit is all about is about discrimination in housing. And apparently what was going on is if you want to advertise on Facebook and let's say you have some rental housing that's available and you want to target your ad to a particular uh, audience, there's all sorts of demographic information available on Facebook because the users you know, supply a lot of information to Facebook. And Facebook, obviously, based on your interest that you indicate that you have and the things that you post and the things that you uh, message about. I mean, Facebook knows a lot about you. Uh, Because you are voluntarily using their surface and voluntarily supplying all this information about you. And this information can be used by advertisers. So apparently a lot of the advertisers who were advertising rental homes uh, were targeting their ads in such a way that Many people in minority communities, let's say African Americans, maybe Hispanics, were not seeing the ads, or maybe they were seeing the ads uh, just in a, in a in a small percentage because the way they were being targeted, right? They were mainly reaching maybe a wider audience, or and some of the people in these so-called protective classes were not seeing the ads, and so now they're being sued by the government for discrimination in housing because they are not advertising to, uh, you know, African Americans or Hispanics, which is completely ridiculous. I mean, to think about advertising for a minute on the internet, I mean, first of all, most people don't want ads on the internet. I mean, they don't want to be bombarded with ads, right? If they want to search for something, right? Like if you're interested in, uh, renting an apartment someplace or renting a house and you're doing a search and you're searching for rentals available in an area, you want to be able to do that. But when you're, you know on Facebook or when you're reading an article you don't need a pop-up ad about some vacancies in some townhomes that's you know you, you know you, that's an, a nuisance right any ad most people are annoyed by ads on the internet and you actually pay extra money or you pay money right you don't pay any money when you're using the internet for free but when there is a fee that fee is generally there to avoid ads right people pay money to not see ads that they don't want to see Yet here the government wants to sue Facebook because they're saying, hey, you're discriminating against African-Americans by not showing them ads. I mean, if anything, the African-Americans are benefiting from not seeing ads that they don't want to see. I mean, if you're saying they're not getting as many ads as, as, as whites and therefore they've been discriminated against. I mean, what are you being denied by not being advertised to? And why would somebody be required? I mean, if I have a home for rent, right? I can understand, I don't agree with this, but I know the government says if you're renting your apartment, you cannot deny somebody access to the apartment because of their color. So you can't have a an apartment and say, whites only, right? I'm not renting this apartment to blacks, right? I don't think that that's right. I mean, I think if a landlord wants to discriminate, if a landlord doesn't want... Uh, a particular ethnic group to rent their property, I think they have a right to do that. I think they'd be foolish to do that. I think you make more money uh, by having a a wider pool of potential tenants uh, to rent your place. And I do think that the majority of people are more open-minded and probably wouldn't even want to rent from a landlord that had that type of policy. I think in today's day and age, uh, I think that, uh, you know, you're likely to be uh, more well received if you're more open-minded and you allow a, you know a, a wider spectrum of people to potentially live in a community. Uh, so, but I, so I think the government is wrong to tell the owner, and I've I've gone over this many many times on my podcasts, uh, that if it, this is personal property rights, people have a right to discriminate, people have freedom of association, and the government has no business. But even if you accept and I, you know for the sake of argument that okay, there is a law that says if you are renting apartments. You can't discriminate, right? You can't uh, say to somebody who is African American, "Oh, I'm not going to rent to you, right? I'm, I, you know, we this is whites only, or uh, I'm not, no Jews, right? This is Gentiles only. You, you can't have a policy that discriminates uh, based on. You can't say no homosexuals. This is only heterosexuals, right? You, you, you have to be, you know, you can't have those type of factors. But to say that you can't even advertise in uh, a, a, a medium that may be disproportionately, uh, you know, appeal to one ethnic group or one racial group over another is complete nonsense. I mean, because nobody is being discriminated against. Nobody who is using Facebook was prevented from renting any of the apartments that advertisers were advertising. If they really wanted to look for apartments in their neighborhood and they actively searched, I'm sure they would have found the listings uh, for whatever housing was being advertised on Facebook. They just didn't see an ad for it, right? They they, they didn't get they didn't get bombarded with a pop up ad or something like that or a banner ad on the um, on the unit. But they could obviously call up the landlord. The landlord probably didn't have you know app wasn't turning down people and i don't know some of these advertisers may not have even deliberately targeted one group or another it just based on the the criteria that they selected it disproportionately meant that their ads were seen uh more so maybe by white males than by uh you know black females i don't know but whatever it was that may not have even been their intention but even if it was their intention even if i'm uh, if i even if i have a uh, uh, apartment complex and I want to rent out rooms and even if I want to target my ads to whites why is that discrimination? I'm not denying blacks or Hispanics from renting my units if they want to do it right? I'm just not overtly going out and trying to find them and, 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 and convince them to come and rent from me that is two completely different things and if you're now going to empower the government even further to say that this also counts as discrimination, well, then you got to go down that rabbit hole and connect the dots because it's not just going to be housing. I mean, what if I am a cosmetic company and I want to target my ads to women? Well, wait a minute. I've just discriminated against men, right? I'm, I'm trying to advertise uh, on mediums that where there's a higher concentration of women, right? I mean, it's not illegal, I'm not discriminating. If you're a cosmetic company and a guy wants to buy some lipstick or some eyeshadow, you're, you're going to sell it to them. You're not going to say, hey, you can't buy this. But does that mean that when I do ads, I have to make sure that a, the same number of men are shown my ads as women? No. Why, why wouldn't I want to target my ads to um, the people who I want to buy my product or are more likely to buy my product, which would be women? But now you're going to be able to have somebody say, wait a minute, that's discrimination. Or the same thing, you know, if if I'm, uh, you know, selling sporting goods. Let's say I'm selling, uh, you know, bowling balls, right? Well, I think more men likely bowl than women, or play golf, or a number of different sports, or basketball. If I'm advertising, uh, you know, my uh, my basketballs, and I'm trying to find a male audience, can I get sued now by a bunch of women, or somebody at the government say, hey, you're discriminating, you're, you're targeting your ads? Now I know that you know, housing is a different uh set of criteria but it's all the same thing to say that somebody has a legal obligation to actively go out and try to encourage people who are in these protected groups to rent their houses i mean it's one thing to deny housing to somebody based on their sex or uh you know their race or their ethnicity or any of that but it's a completely other thing to force that person to now actively go out and try to induce members of those groups to rent their house. It's almost like a quota system now that's being imposed. It's not just you can't discriminate in housing. You need to actively go out and seek out members of these protected groups and make sure that they are renting your houses. I mean, so this is just the government increasing its control of our lives and its ability to dictate what we have to do, and all these so-called you know benefits uh, that are being uh, you know handed down to members of these protected groups, all of these special privileges that are somehow being repackaged as rights, and all of it, of course, is designed to appeal to these groups to get their votes, right? Because the government is saying, "See, look, we're we're doing all this." under the name of discrimination and we're going to stamp out any form of discrimination any way we can. And really all it's about is big government and a diminution of individual liberty and individual rights. That's really the big loser in their zest to make sure that nobody discriminates. What the government has to do is destroy individual liberty. And what we lose in individual liberty and freedom is far greater than what we supposedly gain uh, from You know, not being able to be the victims of discrimination. And as I've said, you know, in a free market, there isn't a lot of discrimination that's going on, Uh, at least the type of discrimination that is irrationally based on race or gender or sexual orientation, because the free market exacts a cost on the business who discriminates. That that cost comes in the form of lower profits, right? Reduced sales, and that makes them, you know, they, they have a competitive disadvantage in the marketplace. So the marketplace, ironically, would take care of all this. But what the government does is actually stacks the deck and rewards the people uh, who do discriminate based on reducing their their, their legal costs and and, and all that. But the the, the bigger loss is in individual freedom. And of course, as you have all these laws, then you have to have more government to enforce it, right? The more laws that are on the books, the less freedom that we enjoy. And so now, you know, you've got all these government lawyers up Facebook's behind, you know, forcing them into court regarding these ads uh, where they say there's less, you know, it's part of this disparate impact, right? That, oh, the result of this ad is that not enough members of a minority community saw the ad, so they may not have clicked on it and they may not have rented the house and somehow this this constitutes discrimination. It's something that needs to be remedied by the government. There is no uh, uh, need here for the government to solve this problem because the problem doesn't exist. The problem is being created by government so they can create a solution, but the solution involves more government, uh, more regulations and a continued loss of individual liberty and freedom.